Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savelle. My guest today is Dr. Samuel Tisherman. He is a professor of critical care medicine and surgery at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dr. Tisherman is with us here today to give us an update on some important areas in critical care medicine, focusing in both on education and research issues in the field of critical care medicine. Thank you so much, Dr. Tisherman, for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Rich. As we discussed previously, I thought we'd begin like we usually do to let the listeners hear a little bit about your background and and what a lot of the fellows find interesting is how you ended up going into critical care uh, from within surgery and specifically uh, the combination of the academic and clinical work that you do. Well, my interest began as a medical student. I was a first-year student and looking for a research position for the summer, and I answered an ad for someone looking for medical students to do cardiac arrest research. The ad had been placed by someone named Peter Saffer, who we're certainly all remembering at this point in the 40th anniversary of the society. Uh, I had no idea who he was at the time. And that began uh, about a 20-year relationship of working with him. Uh, So that got me turned on to the whole area of critical care. Later in medical school, I had to decide whether to go into surgery, anesthesia, or medicine. I found surgery the most exciting. And in fact, Dr. Saffer said that if he were doing it at that point in time, he might have gone into surgery too. So he kind of actually, as an anesthesiologist, pushed me a bit towards surgery. So it was actually the, the, this is all at the University of Pittsburgh even then, right? This is at the University of Pittsburgh, yes. And so your, the first step was actually the research. You started out as in the research part of it. That's exactly right. Wow. When you were in it, was there any thought then as combining that as into a PhD or anything like that, or or at any other point in your in your training? Actually, there was a brief thought about that because what what happened was I decided to go into surgery and I stayed at the University of Pittsburgh for my surgical training, and then when it came to my break from the clinical uh, training to do research, I did it with Dr. Saffer. And I think around maybe the end of the first year, we actually talked a little bit about perhaps going for a PhD, but decided it really wasn't uh, worth it. It'd be better to just spend the time in the lab. And um, and and again, having done a little research myself, it's it's important. So you've had some a, a very powerful long-term mentor early on in your career that was obviously very important in shaping all this, right? Oh, that's uh, I think critical. Um, and and one thing I think that uh, people don't think about too much when they're students or residents is uh, they might have some view of what they think they're going to be doing five, ten years down the road, 20 years down the road. Uh, Sometimes opportunities present themselves that you don't even think about, and suddenly your direction may change, hopefully for the better. Uh, And often it is influenced by a single person or a couple people that you, by luck of uh, chance, end up working with. And uh, one of the things is over time, especially hearing a story like yours where it started as a medical student and went all the way up through, your needs as a mentee change as well as you mature and you have to, the, the mentor has to be able to have some give and take in terms of when you need much more supervision versus less, right? 
Oh, absolutely. That that's the challenge of being a good mentor. And uh, actually, we discussed this uh, a bit at the education postgraduate course the other day of how often people don't have good mentors, uh, or sometimes people get paired up with someone somewhat artificially, and it just doesn't work out. Right. Uh, so I was very lucky to have him as a mentor, and other people along the way uh, that I was very fortunate to work with. But it somewhat luck and somewhat just uh, you know looking around and, and trying to find the right people to work with. And then after you finished surgery there, you, you stayed on and did critical care training at Pittsburgh? That's or? correct. Yeah, I did the critical care fellowship, and, which and, I'm now the director of. <laughs> and you were able to continue working with your research with Dr. Saffer as part of that as well? Uh, yes, I, I continued to do that. In fact, it was kind of uh, funny in a way when I was interviewing for the fellowship, people already knew me because I had been a resident there for a good while and people knew of the work I was doing in a lab and and, and we were trying to do a, a clinical study at the time and people didn't ask me much about other things as, as much as they asked about, well, are you going to be able to keep doing them this clinical research while you're a fellow or afterwards? Uh, and it was a challenge, but I did try to keep some of it going. And then when you finished your fellowship, um, was it sort of an obvious issue to stay at the University of Pittsburgh for you, or, or how did that all, because that's, an, in my life, that's one of the big transitions, is when you finish fellowship and deciding, do you want to reinvent yourself somewhere else where they can look at you fresh versus the advantages of staying where you are? Well, one side of that question is, my wife wouldn't let me leave, but that's not totally true. Uh, but academically, actually for both of us, because she's a physician too, if we looked around, there really wasn't and it isn't uh, a better place for us to be. Between the opportunities within now our Department of Critical Care Medicine as well as the Department of Surgery and for the things that she's doing in the medical school, there's no reason for us to look elsewhere. So, and, and something else that I, I am perpetually fascinated with is the construct of the critical care organization. And I was going to ask you, um, when you were first starting there, it, there was not the Department of Critical Care, right? And so were you more primarily attached to surgery, or how did that all work before the department came about? Well, bef before we were a department, we were a division of the Department of Anesthesiology. So okay. my initial appointment was in surgery with a secondary appointment in anesthesiology, which then became a secondary appointment in critical care medicine once we had an independent uh, department. And I've since now switched my primary appointment to critical care. Uh, but we were a fairly autonomous group within the Department of Anesthesiology, and it was clear that the administration recognized the importance of what we were doing in critical care. So that, that, that was a good part of why we were able to become a department later on. But it was a fairly easy fit. I mean, we, I wasn't the only one sort of bridging between two departments. Uh, a number of people had joint appointments, and that's the way it works. And then um, the other question I was going to ask you is, so you, you finish your surgery training and your uh, critical care training, but uh, and again, I know I've asked you about this before, but if you could do it again, that would be great, is that you are also a trauma surgeon, or or, or how does that, can we talk so about I that least, again? <laughs> so uh, at least I, I, uh, I guess I should say I was. Um, what I did for a long time was uh, cover some trauma, uh, Obviously, trauma comes at night, so most of that was taking trauma calls several nights a month and doing some elective general surgery, and then also spending a week or 10 days or, or whatever a month uh, in the ICU. And at the same time, trying to do some research, trying to uh, do what I can as a fellowship director, 
um, it gets to be a lot. And I found, for me anyway, that uh, somewhat being a part-time surgeon was difficult to really keep up your skills. And uh, of the things I was doing at the time uh, several years ago, it seemed like a good point in my career to stick just to critical care, focus on critical care education, clinical care, research. Uh, so I, I since then stopped taking the trauma call. Uh, but plenty of people do that, and, it, and it's a good match. It uh, depends upon the institution as to how you can work that out to be able to uh, be a surgeon, take trauma call, do general surgery, and also be a good intensivist. And um, is everyone who is a trauma surgeon at the University of Pittsburgh also part of the critical care group or not necessarily? Not necessarily. Most are, uh, and so most people do spend some time in the ICU and then spend their time on the surgical side. Uh, there are a couple people who just do surgery. Hmm. And, and that varies a lot from institution to institution because there are some institutions where the trauma group has their own ICU. Mm-hmm. So the person on for trauma is taking care of the ICU as well as managing the but trauma But in Pittsburgh, that they're always a, it's a separate per- Here person. It's, yeah, in Pittsburgh, it's separate because, because we have this Department of Critical Care Medicine that runs all the surgical ICUs. So but there's separated. a separate physical trauma ICU, though? We do have a separate oh. trauma ICU, but, but it's, it's actually just under the, the control of the Department of Critical Care Medicine. And I guess some people sort of consider themselves first and foremost, like they're billing themselves, I am a trauma surgeon first and, and may or may not have a particular interest in critical care? Or That's definitely true in some, pla- in some circumstances. And I know people who uh, will describe themselves as general surgeons with an interest in trauma. Mm-hmm. I guess I would call myself an intensivist with an interest in trauma. So right. it's, a, it's a bit of an identity that we each have to choose. And then I know it's a little off, off base, but I've done a, a, a podcast with Dr. Kaplan about acute care surgery, and I just wanted to ask you, so what is going on with that at the University of Pittsburgh? Because it's, a, it's an exciting area for me to watch sort of grow. So just to quickly review what that is, acute care surgery is the idea of surgeons who cover trauma, cover emergency general surgery, elective general surgery, but also critical care. And this has come out of some issues related to manpower, but also it's what a lot of trauma groups have sort of evolved into. And in Pittsburgh, we were very early in evolving into doing this. Uh, Fairly shortly after I finished my fellowship, uh, the the trauma group basically started taking all the emergency general surgery cases. So some general surgery consults or all general surgery consults uh, would go to the trauma group. Uh, so we've had that model in place uh, at the faculty level for a, a long time. The training paradigm has been developed by the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, and that the idea being that we want to be able to train people to be able to do what a lot of us were already doing. Uh, we were the third site to be accredited by the AAST as an acute care surgery fellowship. So we. Uh, have now graduated our first fellow and have our second one who'll be finishing in June. And um, so you were saying it's it's subsumed or a part of the trauma section or general surgery section? It's uh, it's mainly it's the trauma section, which okay. is part okay. of the general surgery section. And at our place, it also involves the surgical critical care part. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Is, is It's not synonymous with saying that they're surgical intensivists. Not every acute care surgeon... They may or may not be board certified in critical care. Well, if they if they 
go through the accredited uh, programs, part of that is you have to have an accredited surgical critical care fellowship. Okay. And the fellows spend their first year as critical care fellows, the second year uh, in most places, and, and this is what we do, they basically become instructors in surgery, which means that after we bless them as being able to take independent call, they take independent call, they can they can bill, they can do cases independently. Uh, so they basically become junior faculty for that year, but it's with a lot of uh, backup and teaching supervision, and right. supervision as, as needed. Uh, but also we can loosen the reins a little bit as they demonstrate uh, their competence. Uh, but what, what it is in some ways is an evolution of what used to be called trauma fellowships. A lot of places would have a trauma fellow that somewhat doing what our acute care surgery fellows do now. It's just now more structured uh, and there's more emphasis on making sure they're doing the emergency general surgery and not just taking care of trauma patients. And it sounded like um, from this is being implemented at my place as well that the staffing of that can get somewhat confusing in terms of if somebody's on overnight and did the surgery, are they signing it back out to a team and making sure that that person isn't also on call to do elective cases and things like that? Am I right about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a challenge. I mean, for us, we've been fairly fortunate in having enough people that that's not much of a problem, that right. the person who's on can hand off uh, whatever issues are still ongoing and the person who's coming on fresh in the morning or the person coming on at night uh, will deal with whatever's going on. And that, do, that does uh, take a little bit of a, a cultural change and a, and a perspective change for right, a surgeon because the typical surgeon wants to be involved in everything. Once once you've operated on somebody, there's a sense that you want to do everything. But the reality is that that's not just, that may not be the right thing to do. I mean, there's no good reason other than perhaps my ego that if I've operated on somebody or if I've worked them up and now it's uh, 12 hours later, the patient's getting in the operating room and I've now been in the hospital for 30 hours, there's no good reason for me to do that operation other than my own view of the world. And so it takes a little bit of getting used to just saying, okay, I'm going to hand this off to my partner who's on call now. Right. I remember it came up that it was the surgeon A did this initial emergency operation, but surgeon B was the one that was reassessing the patient a day or two later, but I wasn't in the abdomen. But nevertheless, right, you, you have to make the call like as an intensivist if you pick up a patient or something like that, right? Right. So one of the things that we've done with our trauma group that, that makes it work uh, as, as well as with the coordination with critical care, is every morning at 6.30, there's trauma morning report. So that includes the, the team that's been on during the night, the team that's coming on during the day, and it includes the teams, at least the attendings, from the ICUs. So at one oh, wow. point in the day, we're all in one room. It's a big room with a lot of people sometimes, uh, running through the sick patients, running through the patients who need to go back to the OR or the ones people are worried about. Uh, so that helps with that handoff so we don't drop the balls. I thought I'd let you, for the next few minutes, finish up by talking about some of your uh, pretty amazing research. And the one that we decided you'd, you'd talk about is this concept of emergency preservation and resuscitation, if you'd like to sort of give some background and then maybe some of the specifics. So one of the things that when I uh, went back into the lab as a resident with Peter Saffer was that uh, at that point I had already had some, some trauma experience and it was pretty clear to me that with uh, trauma patients who have a cardiac arrest, we don't do very well with trying to resuscitate them. 
uh, the you know the survival rate's less than ten percent. And Dr. Safford had already been doing years and years of resuscitation work related to cardiac arrest, but putting sort of the trauma world together with the cardiac arrest world, um, he hadn't done much of, but he had this idea, uh, somewhat based on looking at uh, some some data from Vietnam that soldiers who died often had injuries that you could fix if you could get there in time or if you could do something to buy time. So that brought up this idea that we originally called suspended animation, but we've gotten away from that to to avoid the, the sci-fi aspect of that terminology, and we've come up with the term of emergency preservation and resuscitation, which the idea is you've got somebody who's exsanguinating, bleeding to death in front of you. The typical things we do, we open the chest, we give them lots of fluids and blood, and hope that we can fix something quickly to save them. But oftentimes we don't. So if we could do something to pickle them by time, we might be able to save them. And what we've found so far is that cooling them down is the most powerful thing we can use to buy time. So we started some of that work in large animal studies when I was in the lab. Uh, We were able to push out toward about two hours of no blood flow. So we would exsanguinate the animal. We would flush them with ice cold fluid to get them cold quickly. And then what would happen clinically would be we'd rush them to the operating room. we'd, We'd control the injuries. In the lab, we would let the animal stay there in this hypothermic no-flow state for a period of time and then come back and resuscitate them. And since we were cooling them down to 15, 10 degrees centigrade uh, for brain temperature, we would have to use cardiopulmonary bypass for resuscitation, which is another thing we'd already been doing a lot of in the lab. So it all kind of tied together and so I was going to back up about that yeah. so you take the you take the animal how how over long how long a period of time do you do you exsanguinate the animal over does that have to be quick or can that be over a few minutes or? we did uh well we did a couple of different things mm-hmm. a lot of the studies it was very quick we would just bleed them out over five minutes mm-hmm. but to to answer some of the clinical questions about this like well would it still work if the person exsanguinated over an hour or longer particularly so depending on whether it was like a, a gunshot wound to the aorta or something that that and also uh whether it's the civilian world where if you know you get shot in a certain part of town we know the ambulance could get the patient to us in five minutes or the military where you could slowly bleed to death because nobody can get you anywhere mm-hmm. so we we just in the last studies was just a quick five minute examination but we also did one where we did it over two hours and then you said you you flush the entire vasculature with uh, ice Ice, ice, ice saline, that's all. We we did a little bit with trying some other fluids, and some other people looked at a little bit of the fluids, but the saline can work. And and you don't put them on the cardiopulmonary bypass right then, or do you, you put the catheters in then and, and wait however long you've decided to wait for? When when we first did it, we, we did the cooling and the flushing with a full, uh, well, it's closed chest cardiopulmonary bypass. Uh, but then we realized fairly it's fairly obvious that you can't initiate that quickly in a human, but what you could do is get a big cannula in and just flush and then let everything just drain out. So a lot of our studies were then done with that kind of model because we thought that would be more clinically relevant. So we just flush, let the blood drain out from the venous side, and then when we're ready to resuscitate, we're going to give them the blood back, fluids back, put them on full bypass at that point in time. And so so you'll start the cardiopulmonary bypass, and how... Um 
how how quickly is it from your sort of optimal rewarming? How does that work? That's a good question. The the cooling we think has to be as fast as possible. The rewarming probably shouldn't be real fast. I mean, in in the studies we did with the animals, we would warm them up toward 34 degrees or so over about an hour. And we're we're now looking toward doing this in a clinical trial, and we'll probably aim for that kind of rewarming, and maybe a little slower. And um, th- and then again, I'm I'm asking from my sort of perspective of some naivete here. But so is the idea that it's at ju- it's neuroprotection, but probably not just neuroprotection, or what's the? Well, I think you got to preserve the whole okay, animal. That's right. the issue in in the models that we used in the lab. Uh, for most of them, we could get the animals to survive without trouble, and the issue was brain preservation. Uh, with the hypothermia down to the right level, we could buy a certain amount of time for neurologic preservation. But we also found that you had to have the whole the whole body, particularly if you went out to an hour, 90 minutes, two hours of no blood flow. It seemed that sometimes the gut if, it, if we didn't mm-hmm. perfuse the gut and cool it, or the spinal cord if we didn't cool that. So we after we did a few uh, experiments, we realized that we really need to cool the whole animal. So too. you would just find like an ischemic or infarcted spinal cord or yeah, we, dead yeah, it was tough to prove it, but the animals wouldn't move their hind legs or, or their uh-huh. bowel issues, and because uh, we had thought that uh, what might work well would be to have a balloon cannula that you put up in the aorta, mm-hmm. you blow up the balloon, and all you do is perfuse the heart and the brain because they're the most vulnerable organs, right. and everything else would probably be okay, but when you get out long enough, you need to to cool everything. And then, what about uh, getting the animals uh, off of bypa- bypass? Is that ever a problem, or is that something you see if you uh, wait longer and longer? With this model, the hearts were well preserved, so we generally didn't have much trouble getting them off bypass. Uh, the The biggest trouble in terms of cardiac resuscitation and survival was when we did a study comparing standard of care with this whole cooling thing. So we did a study where we bled them over two hours, and then we did standard care, including uh, chest compressions, CPR, giving them fluids and blood, and we compared that to our EPR approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if they couldn't be resuscitated by themselves, we, we'd even, in the standard care group, put them on bypass to resuscitate them. They're the only ones that we could never get off bypass. So these were these were animals that were not randomized to your to your standard protocol. They were just were they were they cooled normal? I'm, they weren't cooled. So they okay. so we did what we. Oh, would they do. suffered the exanguination event. They exanguination, but didn't receive the, the They didn't. Yeah, they didn't get cooled, and they didn't have an extra period of no blood flow. They got CPR just like right. we would do in humans at normal temperature, and they they couldn't survive. So but if in we, an animal model, demonstrating then the, the or at least uh, reinforcing the potential benefits of the cooling part of all. Exactly, exactly. And the key thing with the whole the whole um, protocol is just basically trying to buy time, buying time to allow the surgeon to stop the bleeding. Now, and, and again, uh, I would imagine that the military would be very excited about this as a concept. Is that correct? That's correct. They, they've been funding the, okay. the study, oh, okay. so they're very interested. Even though uh, from a practical standpoint, it's going to be very difficult to do this, they recognize right. that we can overcome difficulties. If we can prove that it works, we can figure out how to make it happen outside the hospital. 
And so I uh, win the lottery and I decide I want to give it all to you and to have infinite resources for this project. That would be great. <laughs> and we have it recorded here. Um, <clears throat> but is the issue then, if you had that and, it, and your research continues to show that it functions, the idea would be, so I'm a soldier, I get shot, and they would have some sort of kit that would sort of quickly go into me? Or, or how, how would that work? That, that's going to be the idea. I mean, right now we're going to try to show that we can do it under the best circumstances in a major level one trauma center. Uh, and then if we show that it can work, then down the road we're working out ways for a non-board certified surgeon to perhaps do this. So there are, are devices around to use things like ultrasound to help people find vessels, smart catheter ideas that have been out there that can basically point, okay, stick your needle here and advance it two centimeters you can be in the vessel so that um, less uh, well-trained people could be able to do this and hopefully move it outside the emergency department. And would this be, would you have to be intubated also, or is the idea you're beyond that, where I need to flush it out, or, and then we need to move this person as quickly as possible? or, or? I might not need to. In, yeah. in the civilian world, these patients all get intubated. Right, right, in right. the I'm just military, picturing. that may or may not be an issue, but they they have... Uh, in various parts of the military, they have forward groups that do have that mm -hmm. kind of capability, and those would be the ones that potentially would start doing this. Well, um, we've actually come to the end of the podcast, and this was uh, as good as I thought it would be. We've been speaking today with Dr. Samuel A. Tisherman, MD, FCCM. He's a professor of critical care medicine and surgery at the University of Pittsburgh. He's currently the interim director of the Multidisciplinary Critical Care Fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh, and we've been speaking with him today about his background as a surgical intensivist and a researcher focusing on his very, very innovative areas of emergency preservation and resuscitation. Thank you so much, Dr. Tisherman, for being here today. Thanks for having me. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website, at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as access to over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MD, FCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.